everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one podcast. Today's episode has been dedicated by Sarah Averick and Jose Rosenfeld in honor of the Shabbat Shabbat Berchot of their daughter, Yehudit Rosenfeld, and their new son by marriage, Yotam Chadad. May their lives together be filled with all the Berchot in the parasha. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea in that week's parsha. Parshat Balak mainly focuses on the journey undertaken by Bil'am, enlisted by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the Israelite people. Famously, he fails and unintentionally provides us with some of the most moving passages of blessing in the entire Torah. The episode, which is most unusual in that it deals entirely with non-Israelite perspectives and interactions, reminds us that God's sovereignty extends far beyond the boundaries of Am Yisrael. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nechama Goldman Barish, who is a returning podcast guest who teaches contemporary halacha and Talmud at Matan Pardes and is a Ramit at Midrasha Torah Vavodah. Nechama is a Yotzer Halacha and she studied in Matan's Advanced Talmud Institute and in Hilchata. She is currently completing a book on women and halacha. Nechama, welcome back to One on One. It's great to have you here. So nice to be here. Uh, today we'll be speaking about the closing episode of this week's Parsha uh, and about the role of women in these rather catastrophic events, particularly through the eyes of the Midrash. And, you know, Nechama, when I was looking through the Parsha in preparation for this conversation, I was really thinking about how the end of the Parsha is such a letdown after the first chapters. God worked really hard to preserve her reputation and to take this powerful non-Israelite prophet and, you know, put him on a different path. And then we get to the end and you sort of feel like we really blew it and that after all that effort, we did not prove our worthiness. I would go even further and say we have this pasuk, Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov, right? How goodly are the tents of Jacob, which uh, we've spent thousands of years leaning into as um, reflecting the purity, the holiness of the inner tent, the idea that intimacy is um, is really reflective of our kedusha, of our relationship with God and, and the divine and, and how you know sacred that space between husband and wife is. And then the contrast at the end of the, uh, at the end of the parsha is, Vayeshev Yisrael Bashitim Vayechal Ha'am Liznot Elbnot Moab. When Israel was staying at Shitim, the people profaned themselves by whoring with the Moabite woman. And really, that uh, that that contrast between the Oalecha Yaakov and the Liznot, right, that very strong uh, word that really reflects a coarseness in sexuality is so powerful. And I'll just pause to say, and so real. Um, you know, if I were giving a tshuva lecture right now, that idea that we find ourselves in these cycles of unbelievable heights of inspiration and holiness and sacredness, and it's what we strive for and sometimes reach. And then the reality is in the next moment, we could be falling very, very low. That's really it's really the human condition, and I feel like the Torah deliberately juxtaposes our potential or God's perception of our potential, and then the reality of 
who we are and our fallibility. You know, the, the verb zana, zainun hei, is a very powerful and consciously placed verb in Tanakh uh, because it is one of the verbs that reflects the fact that a relationship with God is a breath. It's a covenant like a relationship between a man and a woman. And when God is referring to our unfaithfulness or our betrayal of him, we use the word zana. Here it's literally, okay, but it's also in this episode itself, it's also, it sort of seems to be this ritual sexual activity. That's what many of the of the commentators uh, go on in this episode. Um, but this, the verb zana reflects the idea that our relationship with God and our relationship with our spouse are both relationships that we have to preserve and that they're supposed to be with one other person. And that when you involve others, whether it's other gods or other people, it profanes that relationship. So that verb is also extremely powerful. It's used in in non-sexual connotations to describe what happens when we worship other gods. And here, it's an actual scenario that proves the use of that of that phrase. What you just touched upon is something that this year when I taught the Parsha of the Sota at the beginning of Bamidbar, I brought up the idea that the betrayal that occurs when a woman betrays her husband in an adulterous relationship is a micro betrayal of God's relationship with B'nai Israel because God is often compared to the bridegroom and B'nai Israel to the bride. And there's something about the betrayal of the feminine, the betrayal of the woman, uh, the kala in the relationship that is bigger than the the smaller betrayal of husband and wife. And you see that in the ancient Near East as well. Adultery was taken very, very seriously. And I suggested that it really, when there's an adulterous betrayal of wife to husband, it is threatening to the whole fabric of society where there needs to be fidelity to the king, to the emperor, and so on. And in every home, there is this hierarchy or this uh, really, probably the better word is lo- expected loyalty. And when that doesn't take place or when there's a betrayal of that, uh, the whole fabric of what the society represents is threatened. And I think that works very well with um, with a- the expected fidelity to God. And in fact, what you just said is reflected in the Psukim, this idea that after they begin Lee's note, that what happens, the Moabite women invite the people to the sacrifices for their God. The people partook of them and worshipped the God. Then Bnei Israel attached itself to Baal Peor, you know, to the to the these idols, to these other gods, and God gets angry. Right, this sense of uh, absolute incensed this wrath in response to the betrayal of B'nai Israel at this moment to their God. So the, the Psukim present it as first they fall for the women and then they fall for their gods. I would say that many modern commentators look at it in the opposite direction, meaning they were enticed by the gods and a lot of the worship, again, still in the Far East, by the way, but a lot of worship of these gods in the ancient world was through a religious orgy, okay? And that's what that what they were getting involved in. So the Psukim put an emphasis on the women and it's very possible that in the actual worship it was something that was sort of it was combined and therefore it was utterly confusing um, but I want to just take a step back for a second to what you said before about women and and uh, sort of the fabric of society fraying when there isn't a faithfulness I I know that we we can get lost in a conversation about hierarchy but I just want to mention which I think of course you agree with as well which is that of course it's, it wasn't equal uh, and men were not held responsible in the same way 
But I don't, I don't know what to say, but I just want to point out that I think that it is powerful, maybe also perplexing and, and difficult, but it is powerful that women were looked at as the keepers of society's loyalty, meaning that same expectation wasn't expected, was, didn't, didn't occur with men, um, but that women were the ones who were assumed to be those keepers. Now, if that imprisoned them or made their lives difficult, that is of course true. But uh, I just want to point that piece out that it's, it's not symmetrical and that women were the ones who were looked at as being the, the keepers of society's loyalty. And I appreciate that. I, it came up <laughs> in my thoughts and I was like, how am I going to work that in? Yes, of course, a man could have multiple, uh, multiple wives, concubines, handmaidens, um, I will say, if you already brought the modern lens, um, in modernity, of course, women expect fidelity and loyalty. That did shift. And so that today we do define adultery, even if it's not by strictly halachic standards. Yeah, in both directions. Any, any woman will call uh, call adultery or betrayal the idea of her husband having an affair. And, and in that sense, we have gained a, a more equal playing field in what monogamy means. Uh, it goes in both directions today. But thank you. I think that was an important comment. Um, what I'd like to point out, Yosefa, really, as, as a lover of Midrash, and I'd like to bring the Midrash that most um, goes into detail, what's happening in the tents, right? We say, Matovu Olecha Yaakov, and, and there's kind of a veil that's dropped uh, between us and the text, as if what goes on on the other side of the tent is absolutely private, which it is. The Midrash here lifts the tent to give us an understanding of how the women used their sexuality. So really the Midrash very deliberately starts with the sexual as the entry point towards the idolatrous. And um, what, what, as a scholar of Midrash, as someone who's uh, very much interested in where Midrashic ideas come from, and of course I can't get to the, the, uh, the, the absolute starting point. I don't know where a narrative uh, begins. But we certainly have some very early pre-rabbinic or non-rabbinic sources, Jewish sources, that already begin to play with the idea that Bilam comes up with this audacious suggestion to Balak when he utterly fails to use the women. And he understands that he has failed with the, with the cursing. That's not going to work. God is protecting his people. However, he recognizes men particularly, are very fallible to seduction and to the wiles of women. And he says to Balak, essentially, you know what? There's another way we can overthrow the Hebrews. The way we can do that is by causing them to betray their God. I wasn't successful in causing their God to betray them. However, maybe if we start with the other, uh, with from from the other direction, and so uh, we see in in Philo in, in interpreters, early interpreters like Philo, pseudo Philo, Josephus, we really see this idea that Balak and Bilam plot to bring down the the Hebrews by sending in the women, and the women are going to do the job for them. And so even before we get to the Midrash, I would just say, to me, it's just very interesting. This is clearly a very old interpretation. I don't believe Philo made it up either. I believe this is one of those interpretive threads that has been passed down orally along with the text that Bilam gets, um, gets the credit or the blame 
for this particular action because he incites Balak to call for the women. You know, I'll just add in that in one of our previous episodes, we had a whole episode on Philo with Malka Simkovich. So for anyone who wants to hear more about him, please check out that episode. And, you know, I think we've danced around this point in a number of different episodes, the idea that there are earlier traditions or later traditions, right? What Nechama here is trying to say is that when we also have a Midrashic tradition that exists in pre-Rabbinic texts, again, we're talking about early, you know, early-ish Second Temple uh, Second Temple texts before our more classic Midrashic compilations, that very often we look at them as ideas that they were clearly part of the earliest interpretations that we have in our hands. That is how people received and learned these texts in the Second Temple period long before a lot of their rabbinic text. So we tend to think that, and that's what Nechama was expressing, that these are were part of the most basic oral Torah. When people learn the story of Balak and Bilam, they learned that this was part of the plot, meaning it was sort of part of this, you know, sort of blurred line between what's written in the text and what's part of the oral transmission. So just clarifying that little piece, which is really, really important. Now, it doesn't mean that one is more true than something else or is more legitimate than something else but it always fascinates for those of us who are interested in the evolution of story and midrash to see do we have really early kernels of this midrashic idea that appears somewhere else so as Nechama said this idea really appears also in in a lot of our our earliest uh, second temple texts What I'd like to now focus on is really what happens in the Midrash. We're in Bamidbar Rabbah, chapter 20, section 23. And what the Midrash does here is it reminds us of the origins of Moab. And really, that's a wonderful framing. And if we're talking about oral transmission or storytelling and, and the idea that many of these midrashim were shared with the people in shul, kind of in a, you know the sermon, uh, the rabbi getting up and giving uh, an early version of what we call the sermon, um, what the author here does is brings us back to the birth of Moab and um, that Moab's birth is really as a result of incest. It's the moment where Lot and his daughters flee from the destruction of stone. And the daughters truly feel the world has come to an end, and they do what women for time memorial have done, which is they want to bring life into the world despite the destruction and devastation. They get their father drunk, and each daughter, the older first and then the younger, um, sleep with their father, which is shocking for us as readers. But really, if you go into the story, it's very reflective of the urgency that the women in Breshit show towards childbearing. And surprisingly, God opens their wombs, meaning God who has closed so many wombs in Breshit of worthy women, pious women, Sarah, Rivka, and Rachel, he immediately opens the wombs of Lot's daughters, and they give birth to Moab and Ammon. And so the Midrash here reminds us of this story, in uh, in this case, in a, in a negative sense, that whoring or znut is built into the fabric of, um, of who Moab is and what Moab represents. And then, of course, we're not surprised that that becomes a weapon for them when it comes to interacting with B'nai Yisrael. So that really is the opening of this particular Midrash. 
And I'm just bringing it to show uh, the brilliance of the of the Midrash in weaving together earlier stories and reminding us of the origin of Moab. They read the name Shittim as Shtut, uh, something foolish, right? Only only someone foolish would be engaged in this kind of activity. You know, I also mentioned that this idea, so Chazal bring it up all the time, the, the you know, the very... Uh, negative uh, origins of Amon and Moab are used by Chazal as a as a theme in so many midrashim, um, and it becomes the backdrop of so many of so many explanations that Chazal offer. And one of them being in the story of of Ruth and Orpah. Uh, and in that story, uh, they explain that well, and it's it's and I would say it's utterly unjustified in the text itself. Okay, but where it's somewhat like what happens to Esav with Orpah, they end up incriminating her personality and they talk about the fact that she was someone who would commit acts of sodomy, right? Meaning that they really go at Orpah. But the reason they do this is because they're from they're from Moab, uh, and they read into into Orpah and Ruth that they have the ability. Well, they could create a nation, right? They could perpetuate a dynasty if one chooses so, but if they don't, then they go back to those really, really shameful origins of, of where they come from. Uh, and so that's another place that that idea comes up. We bring in the the backstory of Amon and Moab and how they came into the world. And well, it must be that we see that manifest in their in their progeny. So of course, Ruth chooses something very, very different, but they look at Orpah, who ultimately is just Ruth's foil. She just doesn't do the extraordinary thing. And they say, well, this must be because she's from she's from Moab. And what's what's powerful about that story is, first of all, I'm always drawn um, to the text reminding Ruth is consistently called Ruth HaMoaviyah almost till the end of the story. Uh, this question of our identity and can you ever really uh, remove yourself from um, from earlier pieces of who you are and who you were. And um, and Chazal are very, there's a lot of conflict there as can she really be redeemed of her Moabite status? Ultimately, of course, she is because she becomes the great-great-grandmother of David HaMelech. But throughout the Talmud, there are moments where they pause to say, is David really legitimate, given that she comes from Ruth? This idea of a foreigner coming in, a foreigner having these kind of origins. Can you ever fully cleanse yourself? And I think Ruth is the model of, yes, you can, but not smoothly, meaning, and and that, that's where the uh, Moabite origin is really examined closely, because of course a Moabite man cannot cleanse himself, only a Moabite woman because of Ruth. And it really, uh, there's a lot to say there about our, our identity or our earliest stories and how they impact our future. Um, I want to go now a little bit to the Midrash. I'm going to read a, an excerpt of how the Midrash pulls back the curtain on what's happening in the tents and really that the order is uh, sexual seduction that brings to idolatry, that in a moment of weakness, uh, the man has no choice but to submit to, to worshiping the idol. And so in some ways, this absolves the men of some culpability in terms of uh, their worship of other gods. They're not really worshiping other gods. They're seduced by the women. Um, And the Midrash, I'm going to read it just in the English for, for lack of time. And they invited the people to sacrifice for their gods. Thus they, the daughters of Moab, were going by the council of Bilam. So here we go again, the idea that Bilam directly advised the women. They made themselves curtain stalls and installed harlots in them, with every object of delight in their hands. Now a girl would have an old woman as an agent, for an old woman would be in front of the shop. Why, why? 
Right. <laughs> Creating brothels. Yeah, brothels. And mm-hmm. this, um, you know, kind of seducing the men into a sense of safety or security because an old woman isn't going to be attractive, which as I get older, that's a little painful. But OK, during the time that Israel was passing by on the way to the marketplace, the woman would say to him, young man, surely you want objects of linen, which have come from Beit Shan. Then she would show them to him and say to him, come inside and you will see fine things. And when the old woman would tell him a high price, the young girl kind of waiting in the wings would give him a lower price. And then the girl would say, you're like one of the family, sit down and choose for yourself. Now a jug of wine was placed by her since the wine of Gentiles had not yet been forbidden. And then out comes the girl perfumed and adorned and seduces him and says, why do you hate us when we love you? Take something for free, anything. We are all children of a single man, children of Terach, the father of Avram. So do you not want to eat from our sacrifices and from our cooking? Here are calves and and, uh, uh, chickens for you. Slaughter them according to your own precepts and eat. She even gives him the ability to slaughter his own animals, you know, kosher shrita. And immediately she has him drink the wine, the Satan burned within him so that he became a fool for her. And uh, a quote from uh, Hosea, harlotry wine and young wine sway the heart. And so really here, there's a brilliance in the plan and, and Bilam is getting given credit rather than the women, I will say, as if the women wouldn't have come up with this. But uh, but nonetheless, you have an old woman fronting the stall. You have the young girl coming out and being somewhat heroic and offering the lower price and beginning to talk to him in a very familiar way as if, why would you hate us? And she's young and she's beautiful and she's adorned and she's perfumed. And before he knows it, he's already within a seduction scene that he didn't anticipate and can't protect himself from. And so... Um, really, this is only meant to heighten the deviousness, right? That the, the poor innocent, you know, the poor men who fell into this trap, it wasn't uh, active initiation on the men's part. And Vayechel Ha'amli's note, there's something passive, even in the way the Pasuk, the verse describes their whoring as if the daughters of Moab initiated and the men fell into this and were culpable. And of course, God gets very angry, but the Midrash tries to. Uh, explain perhaps or frame how this came to be in the aftermath of the blessings of uh, of Bilam. Now, even within the English, you can hear how Chazal are bringing in the world that they're living in into this Midrash. And you have here what is very clearly the anxiety about how how close or how far do I stay from the world around me. And you have here the question of Yain Nesach, okay, of the wine and the food, and you can even do your own shechting. By the way, the phrase here of Kulanu Bnei Terach, that we're all mm-hmm. sons of Terach, is actually a throwback to a phrase in Malachi, where we have there, we understand that the people were saying at that point, we don't understand why we should be separate from other nations. They didn't feel that God chose them anymore. We're all the sons of one God. And so you have in this Midrash, which I agree with you, is utterly placing the blame on the female side and and presenting the men as having been just really, you know, it was it was innocent. It was an innocent involvement initially that we have in this Midrash, it's the justification for why we have to keep our wine separate, we have to keep our food separate, we have to make sure we're separate because little do you know you'll find yourself at a table and then and then you'll be involved with a foreign woman. Uh, and so that's very strong here, the justification for all of these halachot that Chazal ends up molding and creating in order to keep our society separate because what will be if we start eating together and living our life in unison? Where I, first of all, excellent comment, and I think that this you know, the, the anxiety over identity and how do we keep our identity and preserve ourselves, even though we're living 
um, among those who are Gentile and were in the marketplace with those who are who are not Jewish. And um, there's a lot of temptation. Uh, you know, Beit Shan comes up here again, the idea that uh, Beit Shan certainly had a marketplace and uh, a place where we would be interacting with with the Romans and with the other other foreigners. And how do we preserve our uh, our uniqueness? How do we keep distance and boundary? The other place where this Midrash comes up that to me was was painful and difficult is with the Yafat Toar, with the captive woman in Dvarim. Um, there's an idea in the Midrash that the uh, these ca- these these women of war go out in their beautiful clothing and they go out in orders to seduce the soldiers. And this becomes almost a blanket narrative of what happens when we go out to war, that the women are going to uh, come out like the daughters of Moab, that that's the paradigm for what women do in wartime. And the reason I say it's painful is because my associations of women in wartime uh, are very vulnerable, women who are very vulnerable, vulnerable to, to rape, vulnerable to captivity, vulnerable to objectification. and. Um, what the Midrash does in Dvarim, it's a Midrash in the Sifrei, is really try to uh, warn against some of the blurring of boundaries that happen when Jewish men and foreign women get together, but they lose to some degree the compassion for wartime. And so here we are in wartime where there's room for some compassion, and we do see some compassion in, in parallel texts. Um, but here the, the Midrash is focused on uh, the anxiety over the allure of the outside world, particularly through the lens of beautiful women. This idea that a beautiful woman will be able to seduce even the most pious of men and cause them to cross over the boundaries of fidelity to one God and identity to one nation in pursuit of pleasure and so on. And so that makes its way into other other narratives and other stories as well. You know what I think is the biggest shift, Nechama, from these texts versus the way that we try and speak today is that, and I know that there are still people who speak like this today, but these texts focus a lot on the danger that lies without. It's the crouching tiger. It's the it's the fear of what's out there. And I, and I know I might be living in a small bubble, but I feel that the language we try and use today is to shift to a language of personal responsibility, which is that I I am in charge of the decisions I make. I'm the That's the only thing I can control in this world. I control how I respond to outside stimuli. I respond to how I interact with somebody else. I am not the victim of other people's of other people's ills or other people's traps. I mean, of course people still can put those traps out there, but I think definitely when I teach all different kinds of texts, specifically halakhic texts and the language doesn't necessarily reflect, meaning the the values reflect a value that we want to still instill, but the language doesn't whether it's it's one-sided language just on the side of men and and very often what I find myself doing is is changing the translation and I tell my students outright that I'm changing the translation to reflect a way of speaking that we that I think we would like to encourage today, which is a a a, a language of individual responsibility. You can't be, you can't be silly. You can't be shtut, right? You can't use the shtut as the Midrash said earlier, but you are in charge and you have to be aware and you have to be aware of your weaknesses and of your strengths. And so that to me, when I read these Midrashim and I, and I, I listen to them, I listen to what they reflect about, about what Chazal were concerned about and the values we want to instill, the values of monogamy, the values of, of monogamy in our theological relationship. But the, the part where my, where internally I, 
I come up with a friction is that these midrashim present people as being helpless. And I look at people and say, you are in charge of helping yourself. Absolutely. And I was speaking about that on Shabbat, that I think also, Chazal, there's a strong emphasis almost on the collective and being one person in the collective. So this anxiety over the the collective is very, very strong. And today, I think there's much more emphasis on the individual within the collective and the choices individuals make, not just the impact it has on the collective. And uh, and I think that today we are educating at a time where people are very focused on the eye, meaning iPhones, iPads, and so on. There's definitely both room and opportunity to remind the individual that they have tremendous agency or power or choice and responsibility for the consequences of that choice. And that's a very old Jewish theme, right? That's something we we talk a lot about uh, with regard to the ability to repent and, and do tshuva and come back. But people are really focused on themselves in a way, I think, that that has not been the case for, for many hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Yeah, that, that's not the part that I'm particularly praising. I'm saying from the positive empowerment side. Yeah, no, but I'm going yeah. to that. I mean, that, that, that is the point, that you're yeah. empowering the individual because the individual matters as opposed to the individual as part of a collective. Yeah. I don't know, that, that, that's what I was responding to. Yes, yeah. the individual has a lot of responsibility and ability to resist, but I don't want to discount the influence of the outside world either because uh, you know and I know my students go off and they go to secular colleges and the Ivy Leagues and so on, and they are often very unprepared for how powerful the pull of secular life is when they are a minority in an environment. And so when you talked about the bubble, you and I both live in a bubble, but I think the army in Israel, for instance, is a moment where many young religious people find themselves challenged by the influence uh, on themselves and so on. But of course, people always have the moment to be empowered. Um, what I'd like to go to, building on what you said about the empowerment of the individual, is a midrash, and I'll end with this, um, that I think really takes the idea of Znut, or the prostitute in this case, who's going to be a main character in this story, and the moment that any one person can choose differently if they allow themselves to be empowered and inspired. And um, we know that God says to Moses that when you wear tzitzit, essentially one of the purposes of tzitzit is, do not follow your heart and eyes in your lustful urge. But that word znut appears, zonim acharehan. And there's a wonderful midrash that basically brings together tzitzit and a prostitute in a very almost humorous way. And what we have is a man who's very devout with regard to tzitzit and sees no irony in his pursuit of the most wonderful, high-end, expensive prostitute there is. Meaning he's wearing his tzitzit and he's spending 400 pieces of gold to go across the sea to have an hour of delight with this uh, very well-known, renowned prostitute. And what happens in the story is, and it's really a great story and it's told very well, as he's climbing up ladders to reach her at the top, at the pinnacle of this, you know, seven ladders, um, his tzitzit smack him in the face. And um, really almost like a magic carpet that the tzitzit seemed to fly up from where he's left them and hit him in the face and remind him of his duty to to God and his fidelity uh, to to Torah and mitzvot. And um, he takes his leave of the woman after he explains to her that it's not her, it's him, and it's his uh, relationship to, to Torah and mitzvot. And she is so inspired that she essentially... Um, 
sells her business, moves to the land that he's from, and um, and seeks to make a tremendous change by becoming uh, a member of the of the tribe, right? Of converting to Judaism, and she wants to marry this man who has been able to stop, right? Um, he has that moment, the pause that the Israelites in the Moab story did not take when they are confronted by the beautifully adorned, perfumed woman. This man, because of his tzitzit, stops because he is reminded of something bigger than himself, and she's so inspired by that that she is essentially changes her life in order to be part of that. And the rabbi in the story, in this case, Rabbi Chia, is so moved by her and recognizes her heroism in this moment that um, that he he tells her to go take her sheets and her, you know, the beds she used for prostitution and use them now lawfully in a matovu ohalecha Yaakov, right? The, the idea that she's going to take this into uh, the inner sanctum of her uh, now very holy relationship with this man. It's really a, a, a brilliant story, and one that I think ties together a different way of looking at Znut, that even in a moment of Znut, even uh, that the allure of Znut can be shifted to something kadosh, right? That's the potential of human beings. That's what Bil'am was most afraid that we could do. And here you have a woman almost coming from Moab, right? If I will, she's not called a Moabite, but this idea of someone going from outside into the tents of Yaakov because they see the potential of the Kedusha. You know, if I can go back to what we said before as we close up, for all those who don't necessarily have tzitzitan, um, the Midrash is, is reminding us that when you put yourself in precarious situations, you'll best rely on red lines you created for yourself earlier on, meaning you, you, you shouldn't depend on yourself to be able to stop and think in the moment. If he hadn't had tzitzit, he wouldn't have stopped, okay? It wasn't that he was so mindful in the moment. Right. But the point is, is that because it was part of this framework of religious life and he had ornaments on him or surrounding him that were there to remind him of his previous commitments, that in that moment they were able to save him, quote unquote, from what he was about to do. And so for anybody listening who is in a situation like that, whether it's an adult in a work situation or it's a young person in a uh, in a learning situation or an army situation. I think that this story, which by the way, there's a lot of phenomenal analyses of this story. Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Cordozo has one and there's uh, also, there's a number of great, uh, of great interpretations out there. But, but this idea that we have to create um, visible reminders that we are trying to live a life that is different than what the, the world outside, which sometimes feels threatening, is there to offer us. And so I think that that's for me also sort of a takeaway from this story, um, is tzitzit as a, as a concept of this idea of having physical reminders of, of the commitments that we want to, to keep, even when life sometimes throws us scenarios that make it difficult for us to keep them. Yeah, and uh, bringing us back to the very beginning, you know, where I talked about the cycle of these moments of elevation and inspiration, and then immediately after the fall, and yet the tzitzit are an example of something that can always allow us to pick ourselves up. I think that is the cycle we find ourselves in, and the Torah and mitzvot are a vehicle by which we can uh, remind ourselves, perhaps comfort ourselves, that even when we are uh, moved afar from the goals we'd like to reach spiritually, we always have the mechanism and the ability to come back. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. 
please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.